0: We're going to be in Matthew 9, very powerful chapter, it'll recharge you. Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for a bunch of young people who are gathered right now at the PAC Center, who are learning about your good plan, that we were designed for one person, for life. And that's the way we fit best. And so I pray that there would be a bunch of young people that hear that message, not a message of you taking something from them, but a message of you giving them an abundant, incredible life. So I pray, Lord, that there would be ears in young people tonight, in parents as well that they would hear it as they sit there. And I pray for those who have made mistakes and have not gone the way that they should, I pray that there'd be no condemnation upon them, that they'd realize that there is redemption in Jesus Christ, that you came to save sinners like us and that you cleanse us and you purify us and you give us a reset, a new start, Lord God. So I pray for those in there that have made mistakes, Lord, may today not be condemning for them. May today be corrective, cleansing, And may they have a brand new start to live the way that you want them to live, Lord. So do a good work at the silver ring thing tonight, Lord, we pray. Bless those young people. May there be a generation being raised up at Edgewater and at River Valley and at Parkway and Calvary Chapel and all the churches that understand the generosity of their Heavenly Father, the good, great plan that you have. And may they be those that walk according to that plan. So do a work tonight, we pray. Do a work with us. May we hear about your son, Jesus, in Matthew 9. And I ask this in your name, amen. All right, Matthew 9, here is where we are at. Jesus in Matthew 9 is a superstar. So he's preached this message, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, And it is number one on iTunes. It's top. He leaves that message. And then in chapter 8, we saw he starts to demonstrate the healing and the power that he has. So these massive crowds have kind of gathered around, and they're anticipating what Jesus will do. So that brings us into chapter 9. And there are two movements in chapter 9. Movement 1 is verses 1 through 17, and I just title it this, the king flexes. So Jesus, we'll see, starts to kind of say, this is what I'm about. And then in verses 18 all the way to the end, verse 38, I call that the kingdom is flipped. So there's two movements, the king flexes and the kingdom is flipped. Now, just because there's only two points does not mean it's brief. There's a ton to do, so we're going to jump in Right now, verse 1, chapter 9. So this is the king flexes, and what we're going to see is people start freaking out. It happens to me when I flex too. Just freak out. Jesus is not going to conform to what these people expected, and because he does not conform, some of them get pretty nasty with him. So verse 1, and getting into a boat, He crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. What's the problem there? The dude's legs, right? So Jesus, this guy comes in, obviously he cannot walk, he's carried in by his four buddies on his bed, Set down, Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. I think that guy would be like, what? Really? Be like being on the Titanic and saying, I think there's a leak. I want you to notice a couple things that are real important though. Number one, it says, I love this, Jesus saw their faith. How do you see faith? You can say it. Their actions. That's what he saw. He saw four guys carrying one guy a long ways. The other, Matthew is really brief in these stories. You can get the fuller stories from Mark and Matthew. They actually dug a hole in a, wall, in a roof and dropped him down. So Jesus sees their action, and he, it says he saw their faith. Western people, when we think about faith, we think about this private belief system that we have up here. That's not biblical. It's never in the Bible that way. Read James chapter two. If you want to know what you really believe, don't look at what you say, look at how you live. That's your real faith. Because what we say can be influenced by so many things. But what we do is really what we're about, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we talk to people. That's really what we believe. What we say can be influenced by uh, tuning in 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 the morning to NPR or to Rush Limbaugh. You're going to have a different perspective on the news. It can be uh, changed by by having Dutch bros or not having Dutch bros. Those things just affect us, but if you really want to know what you believe, Look at your actions. That's what it's all about. So faith is not arranging some ideas in your head about Jesus. That's just part of it. Faith is, James chapter two, how you walk that out. That's what you really believe. So Jesus looks down they he saw their faith. Notice it's plural. The faith that we've been called to over and over the Bible, 120 times in the New Testament, it says one another that this thing is not a private matter. I tell young people this all the time. I don't have to be a prophet to know what you will be in one year. I just look at your friends. The community that you gather around you, they're either going to propel you into the faith or they're gonna pull you out of the faith, depending on who you hang out with. So Jesus here, he saw their faith. And then he says this, take heart, my son." Your sins are forgiven. Why does he do that? Dude's a paralytic. Why does he say, Your sins are forgiven? Here's what I think. If you look at John chapter 9, you see the culture that this man grew up in. In John 9, Jesus and his disciples, at this point, the disciples have been with Jesus about two years. So they're not new to this thing that Jesus is doing. But they're with Jesus. They walk by this guy, and he was born blind. And the disciples see the guy that's born blind, and what do they say? Jesus, would you please heal this guy and have pity on him? How can we help him out? Can we give him some money? Can we take a collection and, and help this brother out? Did they say that? No, what do they say? Who sinned? <laughs> this guy or his parents? Because that was the prevailing culture at that time. That if you were sick, if you were blind, if you were a cripple, that you were a sinner. And so this man, for his whole life, he had been viewed as this broken, good-for-nothing dude. You blow it. You get what you deserve. Now, what story are the people at this time ignoring in the Old Testament? The entire book of Job, right? Job continually says, I didn't do anything wrong. And God at the end says, Job didn't do anything wrong. They're ignoring that. You know what? Sometimes we just live in a fallen world and bad things happen. They ignore that. So I believe Jesus is hitting on the biggest problem this man had. Oh, my whole life I've been viewed as this broken, worthless piece of trash. Thank you. Thank you. So then, verse three, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming but Jesus knowing their thoughts. I have that underlined in my bible. How freaky would it be to be around Jesus? You know? I mean, whatever thought comes in your mind, he's like, "Really, Matt? I mean, right now you're going to think that? I cannot believe you." I'd just be like quoting Psalm 23 over and over and over in my mind. Just that's it. That's it. "Lord this is my shepherd, I shall not want." So they know exactly Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. So he looks at him and he says this. "Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven," to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. All right? So, who freaks out in this story? In my Bible, they're called the scribes. When you see the scribes, here's what they are. They are the Bible geeks. These are the people that go to seminary, right? So they know the Bible. So what they did right here is they're like a referee and they're pulling out a flag. <laughs> illegal, man, illegal motion. Penalty, pass interference. You cannot do that. Now, why would they say that? Simple. They knew the Bible. In the Old Testament, God had given them a system, 1,400 years old, that if you sinned, here's how you were forgiven. So if I gossiped about my neighbor, I knew, hey, I sinned, I would go grab a lamb I would get down to the temple. It might be a day or two or three day walk. I get to the temple. I get in line because there's probably a hundred people in front of me that have done bad things. And then we wait in line. We wait till we come up to the priest. The priest takes the lamb, inspects it. If it's good, he says, confess your sins, lay your hand on that lamb. And then he slits its throat. And then it looks at you and he says, you're forgiven. That was a system. So these guys are saying, wait a second, Jesus, you didn't do any of that, man. You just said your sins are forgiven. That's crazy. Let me try to put it in context for you. It'd be like this. Let's say you buy your dream car finally. You have saved up for years and years and years. You buy your dream car, Maserati, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Porsche, Geo Metro, whatever your flavor is, you finally get it. You drive to church tonight, you're parked out there, you're happy, and I'm out there, you're not there yet. This person's backing up, they're texting at the same time, and they just smash into the side of your car. I see that and I just say, you know what, bro? It's going to be fine. I'll tell them, don't worry about it, just leave. You're forgiven. What would you think of me? Right? You would be you blasphemer. You can't do that. What gives you the right? That's exactly what they're thinking. What in the world gives you the right to forgive sins? How in the world can you say that? So then Jesus, here's what he does. He says, okay, fine. Which is easier? To say to this man his sins are forgiven or to heal him? Like forgiveness of sins, how do you fact check that? Any goof can say your sins are forgiven, right? How in the world do you fact check that? You cannot. So Jesus, people get really weird on this. Jesus is just saying, I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna demonstrate to you that I have the right to forgive sins by healing this man physically. I don't think it's a reference to the cross or how difficult the cross is gonna be. These guys wouldn't have any knowledge of that. We're not talking about it. It's just Jesus saying, here is the proof. Here's the fact check. So he heals him, and it's Jesus saying, in this new kingdom that I'm bringing Not only are sins going to be forgiven, Genesis 3, but the human fallenness is going to be healed as well. I'm coming and I'm bringing something amazing. And the crowds, they said, whoa, wow. The traditionalists, the Bible dudes, they freak out. If this is true, then what's going to happen to our temple system? What's going to happen to this entire thing that we've been living for 1,400 years? That is threatened and they freak out. So when the king flexes, The first group that freaks out is the traditionalists, the Bible guys, the scribes. Story one. Story two. King flexes again, verse nine. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, wonderful name, sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What's the problem in this story? The crew Jesus chose to hang out with. They don't like the crew Jesus came to hang with. Now, who gets upset? The Pharisees. Okay? So when you think about Pharisee, here's what a Pharisee is. The scribes are the Bible dudes. The Pharisees, I think of them as like old school, fundamental Baptists. Suit, tie, uptight, lots of rules. And they are shocked because Jesus has called a tax collector to follow him and is hanging out with tax collectors. And to put tax collector in context, I can understand it. A tax collector was this. Rome had taken over Israel. They wanted taxes. They wanted money. They knew this. We don't know this society very well. We don't know who has the money. So we're going to find somebody that's Jewish and lives in this neighborhood, and they're going to collect taxes for us. So that person became a traitor, and they made their money by skimming off the top. I mean, they're the worst of the worst. It would be like an American that leaves this country, joins ISIS, and then fights against us. That's the way they viewed tax collectors. So they are like, what are you talking about? Even worse than that, the only tax that Rome would accept was their coins. On the front of the coin, it had a picture of Caesar, which to them broke the first commandment, making a graven image. And on the back of that coin, it showed a Roman soldier stepping on a Jewish man. It was reminding them, we own you. That's how they had to pay their taxes. So it was just a Totally insulting, hard thing. And Jesus then, he even goes worse. He eats with them. Now, today, we don't have that big of a stigma with eating with people. But back in this day, the way you ate was this there was a big, giant piece of bread, lots of little bowls, and you would literally be tearing off chunks of bread and you would dip them into the bowl and then you would eat it and it was no problem to double dip. So you were intimate with each other, you shared germs got some mercy had like some of that. Zika, let's let's take a little bit of that. It was just this, it was really you're saying, we're all one. We share the same thing. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying, I'm one with these people. So they are ticked off. And what do they do? Who do they complain to? Jesus? No. They complain to his disciples. And when Jesus heard it, I love that. It's funny when Maybe someone has something against you. Very often they won't come to you. Who do they come to? Your friends. Is that the right way to do things? No way. It's Matthew 18. Totally wrong. So there's this like crazy thing that people are like all mad about, you know, something you've said or some Bible verse or some way you've interpreted something. And then they talk to other people disobeying the Bible they know. It's just one of those fascinating things. Pharisees do the same thing. Instead of talking to Jesus, they go behind his back and Jesus hears it. And this is what he says. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means, and he quotes Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus says here is real simple. I'm going to be king of the sick. I'm going to be king of the tax collector. I'm going to be king of the used car salesman. I'm going to be king of the prostitute that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for righteous people. I'm looking for broken, sick people. And then he says this to them, you need to learn something, the difference between mercy and sacrifice. What is sacrifice? Sacrifice was a system by which you could make yourself presentable to God. If I do these things, if I do it prescribed way, then God accepts me. Jesus is saying, I'm reversing that thing. No longer will it be your sacrifice that makes you acceptable. It's gonna be mercy that makes you acceptable. No longer is it, hey, I attended church, God owes me. Hey, I gave some money. Hey, I served here, God owes me. There's none of that. It's you are accepted on a whole different level. So Jesus is saying, you guys do this to people. You wait for them to change, to get healthy, to stop their bad stuff before you accept them. What Jesus says is, I will call them Sick sinners, tax collectors sitting at their booth. I'm gonna call them as sick and then they're gonna to come to me and there's one condition I put on them. And the one condition Jesus puts on those that he calls, follow me. Not clean up your act, not get things together, just follow me. Get in line and follow me. I call this little statement right here, Um, Jesus does not want mullet members. Do you guys know what a mullet is? I had a mullet when I was in high school. They were awesome back then. So you know what a mullet is? Everybody know what a mullet is? Okay, a mullet is that hairstyle that's really nice in the front. And then remember Billy Ray Cyrus? In his heyday, he rocked the mullet. So the title is business in the front, right? Party in the back. Well, a lot of Christians, they think that's what Jesus wants. Okay, I have business in the front Sunday, you know, I'll do business, But Friday and Saturday, man, it's party in the back. No way. Jesus' call is this. You drop what you're doing. Stop all that stuff. I completely accept you. Come follow me. I'm not looking for lukewarm people. I'm not looking for people that are gonna play the hokey pokey, a little in, a little out. I'm looking for people that will drop everything that they were and follow me, and I'll absolutely accept them as they are. Prostitute, sinner, tax collector, drunkard, does not matter. I'll accept them. One condition, follow me. I have a simple saying. Jesus is easily satisfied, but never pleased. He is easily satisfied. Good job, Matt, but never satisfied. Come on, let's go further. That to me sums up New Testament gospel discipleship. Good job. Now let's go. So that's what he's saying. Follow me. Drop everything that you were and start following me, walk after me. We'll talk a lot more about that in chapter 10. So here, he messes with the Pharisees they are mad at him now. Number three story. Then, the disciples of John. So he's gone, scribes, Pharisees, now the last crew. The disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst And the wine is spilled out, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What's the problem here? Jesus, you're not spiritual enough. John the Baptist's disciples are saying, you need to get serious. Remember who John the Baptist is, right? He's the hardcore scavenger that goes and lives in the desert, eats bugs and honey, makes his own homemade clothes out of camel skin. You ever felt a camel? Okay, it's like a Brillo pad, uncomfortable. So John is just like, I am serious. He lives off the grid, straw bale house, drinks his own gray water that's recycled. Just he's hardcore. So he looks at, and his disciples look at Jesus and their boys, and they're like, bro, you guys are soft. I mean, look what you're doing. You're reclining, right? Verse Verse 10. You're reclining and partying. Are you kidding me? Spiritual people don't recline. We get out there and we protest. We protest whatever we can. GMOs, Easter Bunny. Look at all the money you're wasting at that party. You should have saved that money up and given it to a good cause. Given it to Bernie Sanders or something. Come on. What is wrong with you? You are soft. That's what they're saying. So these guys got their identification from being duty-bound, devoted people. And they look at Jesus and his disciples, enjoying themselves, and they get mad. Are you kidding me? You guys can't have fun. Look what Jesus' answer is. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him? What is he saying? I'm king of the party. Are you kidding me? For them not to be enjoying themselves right now would be a sin. If someone goes to a wedding feast and there's all this good food and they're like, no, 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 I'm fasting right now. But you're sinning right there. That is a terrible witness. No, you go there, you enjoy, you dance if you can dance, you just have a great time. Why? Because you're saying, thank you for inviting me. So Jesus is saying it would be wrong for these guys right now. It would be sin for them to stop because the party's here. We're having a good time. And then he gives this analogy of these wineskins or a tear in your favorite jeans that if you patch it incorrectly or feel it wrong, it bursts. Now, sometimes you read things in the Bible, and honestly, they don't translate anymore, do they? Has anyone ever seen a wineskin? Okay, one person. I'm telling you that, like, when I was a kid, we drank out of those Boda bags, remember those? They are kind of like a wineskin. If someone brought those back, hipsters would love them. Like you'd sell a million of them. I'll take 10%. Or if you literally had a wineskin in, in Portland, man, you would sell a billion of those. They'd be like, that is the coolest thing ever. But we don't kind of this like, what in the world? We don't ever use those things. No one makes wine in a wineskin anymore. So here's my best analogy. Have you ever had an old computer that you've tried to update to like new software, like Windows 10, and then you try to actually use it, what happens? You hate it because it's so slow, you're like, download already, come on, I hate this computer. That's the same idea. If you want new software, you've got to have a new computer. They'll go hand in hand. So what Jesus is saying is this, there's this new kingdom coming, and it's going to be filled with a new kind of people, a different kind of people, all right? So the king is flexing here. And really what he says is this, story number one, I'm the God who forgives, Story number two, I'm the doctor who heals. And story number three, I'm the groom who parties. Those are the three things. And it upsets some people. John the Baptist type, ugh. Pharisee type, ugh. Scribe type, yuck. The ascetics say, Jesus, you're not serious enough. The traditionalists say, Jesus, you're, you're ridding yourselves of all these very important traditions. And the Pharisees were saying, Jesus. Come on, you're hanging out with the wrong kind of people. You can't do that, all right? So he's got everybody riled up. And now he starts, rile number two, here's the kingdom, I'm flipping it upside down. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died. Um, If you compare this to Mark or Luke, uh, it'll say, she's about to die. The Greek here can be translated kind of that way. There's, there's looseness in it. There's a grammatical range there. The ESV has decided, translate it has just died. But come, lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment. I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put out, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went throughout all that district. So now we're seeing the kingdom flipped. What you see in this story is fascinating. It's the upside downness of the gospel. You have this ruler. His name is Iris. He is the ruler of a synagogue. He's a very important person, right? He is big dog in that city, does things right. He comes to Jesus. He kneels before him. He asks very politely, like he does everything right, so you've got him on one side, Jairus. On the other side, you have this old lady, superstitious, kind of sneaky, has this issue of blood that's been going on for 12 years. Not like an emergency. You're not calling 911 for her, right? I mean, you've had this issue for a long time, all right? It's kind of uh, a chronic issue. Um, she, she grabs a hold of Jesus's hem when she is unclean. Guess what that would do to Jesus? make him unclean, she was breaking the law by actually touching Jesus as an unclean person. So she's this superstitious, older person, chronic issue, and she breaks the law by touching Jesus's garment. And what does Jesus do? If you put together the other accounts, this is what's fascinating. It's when Jesus stops and starts dealing with this woman that there is news sent to Jairus, hey, don't bring Jesus anymore, your daughter's dead. So, you have this guy who does everything right. Jesus puts him off. He's got a 12 year old daughter that needs 911. Jesus puts him off, deals with this woman who's had this issue for 12 years, stops patiently with her, superstitious, does everything wrong. And Jesus says, Hey, lady, your faith has healed you. I love that. I love that. It's the reverseness of the gospel. Sometimes I feel like as a pastor, God does this to me. Are you kidding me? You're putting me off for her, for him? Really? That's right, Matt. I'm putting you off for him, for her. Because the gospel is not about you. The first is going to be last. And the last is going to be first. And I'm going to flip this whole thing on its head. And I'm showing you in this picture, the guy that you would expect me to be like, hey, right now, all right, 911. Nope. And this lady who has been suffering and superstitious and sneaky and a lawbreaker, I'm going to stop. I'm going to minister her. And I'm going to love her because that's the gospel. It's upside down with these two. It's amazing to me. And there's in the other texts, which are much longer, Matthew is summarizing these. There's so much tension in the story. It's just brilliant. So you see it flip there. It flips again, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, "'Have mercy on us, son of David.'" When he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. So here's another story. These two blind guys, when they see Jesus, these two blind guys, when Jesus walks by, they don't see him, when they realize Jesus is close, that they start to call out to Jesus. And what's the term that they use? Son of David. It's the first time in Matthew that that title has been applied to Jesus. What are they calling up? It's called the Davidic covenant. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. A very, very important covenant that is actually repeated through Isaiah and is the entire thread that weaves through Isaiah. That, that, it's, that, it's called the netzer. Perhaps you remember that from chapter one. He's the root, that the, the tree that was David's lineage is cut down. You see it in chapter six and chapter 11. And it looks like the stump is done. The kingdom has been put away. Babylon destroyed them, took away everybody. But then all of a sudden it says out of the side of that stump sprouts a new root that the kingdom re-sprouts, that God keeps his word, and there is coming a king who will sit on the throne of David. So the blind people are the ones that see it. How upside down is that? The blind people are the one that know he's the king. He's the king. I love that. Be very careful who you discount. Who are the last people that should know, see that Jesus is the king? Blind people. Who are the first ones that see it? Blind people. Be very careful who you discount and who you say, I can't hear anything from them. Be very careful. Because 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, man, in this kingdom, things are different. That the wisdom of the world is being spoiled and reversed by the foolishness of you and me. That God loves to use the weak things to confound the wise. That's what we need to be looking for. The person that you think they can't talk to me, very often is the one person that you should be listening to. Ah, oh, God would never speak to me through my daughter. Oh, yes, he would. Ah, oh, God would never speak to me through my wife. Yes, he would. God would never speak to me through my husband. Yes, he would. He loves to use the last person you would expect, the blind people see, All right? One more. Verse 32 As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, very interesting, it's a different word there, it's oppressed versus possessed. We don't have time for that. But as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to them. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said... He casts out demons by the prince of demons, by Beelzebub. Hmm. So the crowds here, Jesus does something. Mute, demon-possessed guy. Demons cast out. The crowds marvel, and the Pharisees flip it around. It's black magic. He's in liege with Lucifer. He's only doing it by the power of demons. Demons. So interesting, you have crowds being blown away, you have these blind men seeing the king, and then you have some actually dismissing Jesus as, he's a bad seed, he's doing this badly. So Jesus responds, here's how he responds. Verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's how he ends. You have verse 35. To me, verse 35 is a day in the life of Jesus. So Matthew is saying, this is what Jesus just did. This this is, if you were to look at his journal, if you would, and see what his day looked like, it would be preaching, the gospel, teaching, and healing people. That's just a day in the life of Jesus. And then when he's out and he sees everyone just kind of scattered and helpless, he has compassion on them, and then he looks at his disciples and he says this to them, hey, boys, hey, boys, here's a mission. I wanna call you into this mission with me. I want to call you into partnershipping in this thing. And we'll get to chapter 10. That's exactly what all chapter 10 is. He sends out his boys on mission. Boys, partner with me. Look at all this work that needs to be done. Let's get after it. That's chapter nine. So here's my question before we go. As you look at this chapter, you have to ask yourself, what's the key to the mission? What's the key to living like Jesus? What's the key to being in his kingdom? I think there is one key that's repeated three times so that we don't lose it. Verse 2, and Jesus saw their faith. Verse 22, and Jesus turned, seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Verse 27, verse 29, and he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. So the question then is, what is the faith that Jesus is looking at here? What is it? I think you see the negative of it in the Pharisees and the scribes and John the Baptist's disciples. What's their issue with Jesus? Jesus. They wanted Jesus to fit in this nice little box that they were comfortable with, right? We want you to do things the way that it's always been done, either traditional stuff, seriousness, or hanging out with just the right kind of people, wearing the right kind of clothes, doing the right kind of stuff, right? So they had a box for Jesus, and they said, Jesus, we want you to stay in that box, and we're really close-minded to you doing anything outside of that box. We want you to comfort us and keep telling us that we're right. Right? And if you'll comfort us and keep telling us that we're right, man, we're good with you. Pharisees, you guys are good, man, hanging out with the right people. Scribes, you are right, man. The traditions are real important. John the Baptist, yeah, we got to be serious, man. we got to get down to fasting. That's right. So if Jesus would have comforted them in their box, then it'd be like, hey, cool, we like Jesus. But he didn't. He didn't do that. Instead, the blind, the lame, the lady with the issue of blood, here's what they had. They were open to the possibility that Jesus could be more. And when they were open to the possibility that Jesus just might be more than their little box, he blew their minds. Wow. I'm amazed. What we will see as we go forward in Matthew, it'll become more and more apparent, is this. Jesus will work with people right where they're at. So when we talk about faith, sometimes we think, man, I got to muster up more faith. And faith almost becomes like this, this currency. If I just had more currency, I could buy more things from Jesus. That's not the faith of the book of Matthew. It's not the faith of the Bible. It's very different than that. The faith you see very clearly described in chapter nine is this this idea that, you know what? This guy's the king. You know what? This guy can do more than I can imagine. It's not building up something. It was just coming to Jesus and be like, I'm open to the possibility that you could make me see. I'm open to the possibility that you could heal me from this disease. I'm open to the possibility that I could stand up and walk. I'm open to that. There are, while the other three are closed-minded. There are, it's a comparison in this chapter, all right? So what we're going to see is Jesus meets us where we're at. I think it's like this. Here's the best illustration I could come up with. I have a year old son, Myron. Uh, he is fun, but he's two. So a couple days ago, he says this to me, I, I, I'm, I'm headed out somewhere in my truck, he loves to drive in the truck, he's like, dad, I want to go with you, I want to go with you. I said, okay, great, son, let's get your shoes on, get your shoes on, get a little coat on, it was cold, head out to my truck, I open the door, and there's a car seat in there. So I'm like, all right, bud, I'm going to put you in your car seat. No, I, I don't want to go in the car seat, not in the car seat. I said, bud, do you want to go with me, do you want to ride that? Yeah, yeah, I want to ride with you, dad. Okay, bud, then I'm gonna put you in the car seat. No, I don't want that car seat. I don't wanna be in that car seat. No, I don't want the car seat. Uh, bud, let, let's let's get back. It's real simple. If you wanna go with me, you have to get in the car seat. If you don't get in the car seat, you can't go with me. Do you wanna go with dad? I wanna go with dad. Okay, I'm gonna put you in the car seat. No, I do not wanna go that side. Not that car seat, but I'm gonna do it one more time. Right? Do you wanna go with dad? I really wanna go with dad. I really wanna go with you. Okay, good. If you're gonna go with me, I'm gonna put you in that car seat. No, I don't want it in the car seat. I just want to say, like, dude, you're nuts, man. Two-year-olds are nuts, aren't they? So he would be like, hey, squirrel, look at that. Let's go look at the squirrel. Right? I had to change the subject because it was just getting crazy. Buddy, there's only one way to do this. If you want to go with me, get in the car seat. If you can't get in the car seat, you can't go with me, all right? I think Jesus sometimes says that. Matt, you get in the car seat. I want you to get in the car seat. You can't go with me, but I'll wait. I'll wait for you. I'll bring you along. I'll meet you where you're at. No, no doubt about it. Squirrel, Matt. Go get the squirrel, all right? We'll, we'll deal with that right now. No problem, okay? So Jesus, what we're going to see is more and more he meets people just where they're at. Even those that were closed-minded with him, Jesus is still generous and compassionate and pushing them, and those that were open to the possibilities, I met them right in that spot. So that, to me, is what faith is. Are we open to the kingship of Jesus? Are we open to saying, you know what? Jesus might be more than I thought. He might be bigger than I really imagined, that maybe the traditions that I have in my mind for a long time are are maybe just incorrect, and maybe I need to reread the Gospels and re-look at Jesus and see, really, what did he do? And rethink it and re-contemplate it. And I'm going to allow him to define for me what things are. That if he calls me and says, leave that, even if it might be a comfortable place, job, position, money, leave that table, I say, okay, you're the king. I'm going to allow him to redefine what sex means. I'm going to allow him to redefine what reconciliation means, what forgiveness means, what life means. I'm going to allow him to do that because I'm open that he might just know more about these things than I do. And when I react that way, when I'm like the lame guy, when I'm like Matthew, when I'm like the woman with the issue of blood, when I'm like the blind guys, what happens is he heals me and he transforms me into something incredible. I believe he transforms us into kings and queens, that it is this movement that God meets us like Myron, my two-year-old. Hey, want to come with me? I'm going to make you into a king, but not that way. I don't want that seat. Okay, we'll wait. He'll ask me, hey, you want to meet? Yeah, I want to be a king. Okay, get in the car seat. No, I'm not getting the car seat, but he'll still meet with us. And slowly but surely, what happens is you start being open to the greatness and grandeur of Jesus, and you follow him, and he transforms you. To me, that's this chapter. Do you have faith in Jesus like that? I'm open to you being a big king. I'm open to that. And I want to see my life healed and transformed. I want to see you as the son of David. I want to see you as the God who forgives. I want to see you as the king. I want to see you as the doctor that heals. I want to see you that way. Because when you do, oh, it's awesome. It's the best. And so I pray for us. I pray that, Jesus, you would be king, that you would be healer, that you would be the compassionate one, that you would be the God who forgives, that you would be the one that calls the unrighteous to you, cleanses us from our unrighteousness, and makes us like you. I pray that we would know that you are so compassionate that you, like my son, Myron, you wait. You meet us where we're at to bring us to where you are. And so I pray for each of us tonight. I pray that whatever box we have put you in, whatever comfortable way we view you, I pray that you would tear down those boxes. You would explode those things. and That we would see you majestic, high, lifted up, marvelous, the King who heals, the King who rules, the King of compassion, the King of redemption, that we would see you those ways. So help us in that, Lord. Help us to have that kind of faith. Forgive me, Lord, for being a Pharisee. Forgive me for being a scribe. Forgive me for being a John the Baptist disciple. And help me to be one that follows you like Matthew. Help us all in that, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.